to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, nobody. Now being uh oh, the beginning of our first podcast. Cole Never and Scott Hines. What a day. Oh. This is this feels odd now. I don't know. I think um, it's probably important for us to introduce ourselves. What do you think? Let's do it. Yeah. So, Scott, who are you? (laughs) I'm Scott Hines, uh, PhD in IO psychology. Uh, I currently work at Amazon Web Services, uh, focusing on network analytics and uh, other uh, advanced methodology to uncover uh, insights to help people do better at their job and make the company more efficient and profitable. And, it's kind of and, and how'd you, how'd you, how'd you get to Amazon? How'd I get to Amazon? Uh, let's see. I studied at uh, Louisiana tech university and, uh, uh, ran the advanced, uh, people analytics function at all state for a time before coming oh, over wow. here. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. But you, you know, I've, I've known you for several years and, you have, I mean, we, we could spend the whole podcast talking about your history. Yeah, we probably could. So that's what we're not going to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, so uh, I'm Cole Knapper. Um, I lead um, a few functions now uh, at uh, a startup called Booster Fuels. Um, we, uh, so I've got compensation and benefits, HR technology, people analytics, talent and performance management, learning and development. And I think I'm missing something, but my, I cut my teeth in people analytics and I've got a background in IO psychology from Louisiana Tech, just like Scott. But uh, I think the easiest way of kind of condensing my career is between big companies and small companies. So I, I cut my teeth in, in people analytics in some large organizations like PepsiCo, Toyota, Texas Instruments. Um, and I've been I've, I've started from scratch people analytics functions, I think now at four companies. Yeah, I think four companies I've started people analytics from scratch. Um, and, and I would say I'm somewhat of a quasi leader in this space. Uh, I, I don't get out there as much as maybe some folks do at like the conference circuit, but I, I definitely have been trying to influence things behind the scenes for a while. Um, and, and I just enjoy this area. And so Scott, when you know you reached out about starting a podcast, I was just so freaking jazzed about doing that. I thought it was gonna be the greatest thing ever, and you know, I've been ta- thinking about doing a podcast for years. But I don't know what what was kind of your motivation behind wanting to start this thing. Motivation was just uh, talking to folks. Like I, I know that you're just a wealth of information, and I've really enjoyed our conversation in the past. And you know, in the future, we'll, we'll invite other guests to have more to say about their specific areas, et cetera. But it it, it, it gets hard when, when you leave grad school to stay abreast of what's going on in the field. I mean, of course, you have like industry magazines like uh, HBR and uh, NBR, et cetera. But, you know, it really does. And of course, PSYOP. PSYOP's a huge resource. But those just come around so infrequently and people get ingrained in their day to day jobs you know their current projects etc cetera, etc cetera. <clears throat> it's just hard to stay abreast and just connect with folks outside your own little sphere uh, especially during this pandemic it is i think we've lost a lot of connections uh to folks and this is the means to start a conversation have 
discuss interesting topics and uh have some fun really yeah i mean like we're we're meeting people where they're at nobody's reading in 2022 you know getting on google scholar and reading journal articles <laughs> from yeah. personnel psychology to figure out about the next hot topic they're you know they're going to podcasts they're going to linkedin they're going to you know even sometimes like the twitterverse and all of that kind of stuff but to find out like what's cutting edge and you're right you know you can go to a conference once a year but you're always you know 364 days behind you know where you were last year because you know those things are all dated and so this is this is going to like help us i think you know find our people you know like who are the people that are interested in the stuff that we're interested in and helping those people find us too you know like the, i think that we we got a really kind of probably an interesting take on this that you know maybe Maybe it's a little bit more loosey-goosey. Maybe it's a little less polished, <laughs> but maybe it's a little bit more fun and maybe even a little bit more ambitious than, than you know, the, what's common out in the field right now. Yeah, and I hope we don't limit it to just, like, strict IO topics. I think people would be bored out of their minds if they, uh, you know, stumble upon just uh, hardcore HR sort of stuff. But uh, talk Maybe about... talk about that because I would love to see, like, what's your Venn diagram of, like, IO psychology and people analytics like where what's distinct in IO psychology that's not people analytics where the two overlap and then where where is people analytics completely you know <laughs> completely opposite or completely you know diverged <laughs> from from IO psychology oh man so I I think that I, I think that you and I are kind of a great pair because we, we can attack this from different angles in the sense of like I deal with a lot of numbers, right? Uh, I, I get into a lot of R programming, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, uh, you know, bend the data to my will, et cetera, to make it happen while you. Uh, that is so understated, Scott. <laughs> Bending the data to your will. You sound like either a superhero or a supervillain. I'm not it's, sure which one. It's super annoying is what it is. Uh, maybe that's my superpower. It's just... Uh, uh time consuming and frustrating it's it's a wonder i have any hair right now uh just pulling it out but like i i, I kind of see io not necessarily as like a venn diagram but more of like a like a pyramid it's, it's the foundation upon which like all this other mm, i don't know data science sort of stuff can be built on top of so you understand uh, the general theory and, you know, you got all these different realms of IO from, you know, job analysis to selection, leadership, all of the culture, et cetera. And uh, you have all this like past uh, findings and resources and like uh, uh, methodology, et cetera. And then you can build, you know, these cool ML models or, uh, you know, advanced network analysis, you know, all sorts of things go on top of this to derive insights that are pertinent for that company and for the question uh, that's being asked. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I like the pyramid uh, type model. The the areas where I think it, it's kind of at the tails where I see things being a slightly different. Like, I don't really see any organizations. Maybe there are some out there that are, but like, if you get to like the more arcane parts or esoteric parts of IO psychology, like if you're truly doing very manual job analysis and things like that, <laughs> there is no, no relation. You. There's no relation to people analytics there, but that's very no. strictly in the IO psych part of the Venn diagram. Whereas like, I would say when you get into the things like 
bending the data to your will and, and like the methods behind doing like you're truly getting into like the data engineering parts of people analytics. I think that's pretty, you know, removed from the typical IO psychologist, right? And, and, and probably is outside of their wheelhouse. Like maybe it's a means to an end for them. Like, yeah, maybe they want to mm -hmm. do some really cool psychometrics work and therefore they've taken up data engineering as a hobby. But I would say that's pretty outside of the, you know, the Overton window of, of IO psychology. I'd say, but there is a strong overlap. And I, I, I do like the pyramid analogy because I see IO psychology as like, you know, the giants that pe the people analytics community is standing on the shoulders of, right? Right. You know, like, like IO psychology has been doing the, at this game for 100 years and people analytics is, you know, arguably maybe 25 years at the, you know, unless you're like the, you know, U.S. Army or something like that, that's been doing it for a long time. I mean, there there's some organizations that started in the late 90s, but those are very few and far between. And frankly, there was probably somebody's pet project. It wasn't like central to that organization. I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, I know. I I, th I think it's apt. Uh, you know, you, you hearken back to like some of like the f foundational IO studies of like we're like it literally like turning lights on and off in a factory and just seeing how workers react to this this sort of thing. But but you, you struck you struck me with something you said earlier about just kind of like the, the difference in um uh, or, or or the the variance in uh. I IO's propensity for like stats and this sort of stuff. I saw like a really interesting uh, tweet this morning. It says something effective like you wouldn't believe how many stats are performed in like Excel for mm -hmm. these papers, which which is really freaking scary to be honest. Uh, just because like there's no way to recreate any sort of issues that come up in uh, you know if, if an error is made, you would never be able to recreate it. Uh, but I, I think that people analytics has to move towards more advanced or at least syntax based analyses, right? Yeah, I think that that's becoming kind of the foundation by which things are built off. Of. I do, I, I do want to kind of riff off this point though, and I've thought about this a lot because there's, I, I mean, I'll, I'm a worse offender of it. I've done a ton of stuff in Excel in my career, and like this whole concept oh, yeah. of. And I've even done this in classes I taught where you give 30 people in class the exact same data set. And you say, and the same set of <laughs> same set of hypotheses. And and they come to vastly different conclusions just because, you know, one group decided to list wise delete data, whereas other groups did like mean replacement and, and, and just like very small. And I think it's Again, I know nothing about math in this regard, but it, it seems like kind of like the basis of like chaos theory where like a butterfly, <laughs> you know, a butterfly flaps its wings in China and creates a tornado in Texas or something like that is like you make these really small changes in decision rules with the exact same data set and can come to vastly different conclusions. And the only way to get around that to, to your point is through syntax reproducibility. And, you know, we, we know scholars that advocate for, you know, sharing code, et cetera, in journals, you know, so like publish your code along with it, this sort of thing. But but it's 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 so right. Like, if you look like meta-analyses, like, I got to hold this like on a pedestal of like, well, you know, we're, we're combining all these various studies and we're kind of coming to like one conclusion. There's so many freaking choices that go into that, you know, there's 
I'm working on the ML model right now, and I had no idea like all the choices that go into it. Not only from like the uh, features of your engineering to like the choice of your model to, uh, oh my god, and, and you get like way in depth too, like how to optimize and like how are you optimizing? How many iterations? Like what's the threshold you're setting there? I mean, it's just choice after choice after choice. Mm-hmm. And, you and if you were to write like a method different. section of a paper, oh my god, yeah, like think about that. You like you ever heard the expression like the map is not the territory, right? Like the <laughs> only way that I mean, imagine that there's like a day in the future where not only do you have to submit your syntax, you like have to submit like a videotape <laughs> of like you explaining every decision that you made <laughs> throughout the process and like what your reasoning was because there's no justifiable way of determining why you got there unless you did that you know i i, I can't justify what i ate for breakfast you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> like, so sometimes you have to just make a judgment call in the moment uh but i mean that, that's part of the fun like i think everyone's trying to do their best in in the moment but i mean turn a document is damn near impossible too yeah i don't know tell me if you you encounter this just to kind of switch gears for a second i'm kind of on this riff right now because I've, for some reason over like the last few days i've had to talk to quite a few vendors related to people analytics and oh. i've just been getting so stinking frustrated with them and my reasoning for being frustrated is like what i'll call I don't know, uh, satisfaction with mediocrity. <laughs> like they're, they're so focused on kind of like productizing, like the least common denominator type of like tool or application or value add that nobody's really striving to be like world-class. And I'm like, I'm just getting so frustrated by it. I don't know. Do you, do you ever even work with vendors in this space at all? Uh, well, like, hey, knowing you, I know you get frustrated with vendors anyway. So I don't, I don't, <laughs> mean, I don't know if it's necessarily them. Uh, yeah, it's probably more of a me thing. You're right. <laughs> uh, I, 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 well, you have high standards, you know, so it, it, yeah. it makes sense. And you're, you're, if you're freaking paying for a service, then like they should be delivering high quality stuff. Did I tell uh, you this? My, my team did an offsite not that long ago. And we did this team building exercise. Did I tell you about this already? No, no, I don't know. Okay, so we, what we did is we, we put these like smocks over ourselves and we went around the room and wrote on each other's backs like the things that we appreciate most about this person. And oh, so it would be kind of like semi-anonymous, but you also, you'd take off the smock and you'd see like, oh, here's all the really nice things that people said about me. <laughs> and I, I took off my smock and it, it kept saying, Cole is challenging and innovative. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not sure this is a compliment. <laughs> but, it, but like, that was my brand. It, like, seriously, like, almost every comment was, like, said something along the lines of challenging. Like, he always challenges the best of me. And Cole is always wanting to be innovative. So I was like, hey, that it, people could say worse things about me. You know, I, I can live with that. <clears throat> and, and that's with them in person, right? So it's like, yeah, that was in person. Now you're totally anonymous. Yeah. But we, we were kind of riffing off like the vendor thing. Sorry, I kind of cut you off there. Oh, no. Uh, I think we're just kind of all over the place. That's fine. Yeah. Um, no, no, I, I don't work with vendors at all at uh, uh, Amazon. 
I did it all state, but it was such a painful process. Like I, I empathize with you totally. Uh, what what kind of services are you looking for right now? Uh, you know, one of the things, and this is by nature of being at small companies. So like if I was uh, still at like a big company and had a pretty sophisticated and mature people analytics function, uh, we usually yeah. do, we just built everything in house, yeah. right? When you're in a small company, the, that decision build versus buy becomes a lot more um, just nuanced in the sense that like speed has such a premium and it's really hard when you're when you only have like, you know, a one person people analytics function to build something really robust. And so sometimes off the shelf becomes necessary, especially from like the time to value quotient that you're really looking for. Um, so I've. I've really had to stay more abreast of the top vendors in the space. And and I would say top being relative in the sense that in the startup space, we also use more startups as vendors. Whereas like Mm -hmm. in a big company, you usually use more like enterprise tools that aren't really startups anymore. So I, I try to stay abreast of the enterprise tools, but that's a little easier because they don't really change that much other than like mergers and acquisitions whereas in in the startup space there's always a new one and so i I try to really um you know reach out to vendors proactively more than i ever have in my career now i mean that that makes total sense like you got to build the infrastructure to get things going and if it's just you or a small team like there's no way you're going to be able to do that or it's going to be like really terrible and painful and painful like just trying to set it up is painful it's like i have this riff that bespoke customization is like the root of most of like the unique and incremental variance that people analytics brings to a company right whereas like in the vendor space customization is like the worst like four letter word you can use Whereas like, I mm. think that's really a lot of the value that people analytics brings is like that local utility or that local validity. I don't know, what what's what's your perspective? And I guess maybe like, what's the Amazon line on that? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the question at hand. Uh, I, I deal with a lot of like org wide issues, a lot of like culture sort of stuff where like turnover applied to the entire organization, this sort of thing. But, you know, been doing people analytics for several years, you get a lot of these sort of like localized questions. So like there's a uh, issue in the sales organization or a specific leader is having trouble with, uh, uh, I don't know, how, how quickly their team is making decisions. Like, do we have any sort of data on it? What, what data can we scrape? What data can we collect uh, and derive some insights to dive in further with uh interviews or you know what have you to try and get them back on track back in the right direction so that's kind of um it sounds like it's sort of a variant on the whole od and people analytics kind of being two sides to the same coin right because it seems like what you're saying is not just the consultative model of like, how do you put these things on a local level into practice, but like, how do you walk people along for the journey with you? You know, I don't know. Is that, is that kind of where you're going with it? Uh, yeah, a bit. I mean, there's all sorts of people analytics things that, uh, are that kind of stem from that, like all the way from, uh, 
like how you present the data to uh, communicating it uh, in, in a way that leaders can accept. Because being like, uh, yeah, we, I, we I could can, do a whole conversation yeah, on yeah. that topic alone. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. I mean, I I can throw out you know significance values or R squares, etc. And like they don't they don't give a shit. They don't care. They don't know what it means. They don't. By know the way, all. this is a podcast that allows <laughs> cursing. Just uh, prefacing that. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. Uh, if you're not down with the common vernacular, this probably isn't the place for you. All right, keep going. No, no. Uh, I mean, th- th- there's all sorts of things that stem from just running the analysis to, you know, getting leader uptake and, you know, present in a way that uh, is accessible and actionable um, that, w- that we can cover later on. Uh, but yeah. all these sort of things matter to people in analytics function. And I, I think it's probably like more your domain. Like I, I can generate a lot of uh, insight, et cetera, but you, you, you need a mouthpiece to uh, relay that information. Uh, yeah, that, that's actually kind of what I, what I appreciate about my role now is sort of being the wolf in the hen house of <laughs> I I am the leader now who I was trying to convince in prior roles, right? To make a yeah. key decision. So like in a way I am the owner of people analytics, but I, in the way I'm also probably the number one customer of people analytics. And that's kind of what I like to be is demanding things of, you know, not just my team, but I'll say like the whole people or HR function that most people in HR functions aren't demanding of themselves, which it, namely is just, are we holding our sta- ourselves to the standard of making decisions that are based in, informed and driven by data, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the, the riff I have is, how do you know what you're doing is working? And then one of our operating principles is do what works and only that, nothing more, nothing less, <laughs> right? Well, how, ca- how can you do that if you don't know if what you're doing is working and how can you know what you're doing is working if you don't have any data, right? Like, I think these are very like ontological questions <laughs> that uh, oh, yeah. I think most people don't really struggle with, but I just sit here, like keep myself up at night thinking about these type of things. But yeah, I think being that number one customer of people analytics allows me to demand things of people analytics that I always wished were demanded of me when I was kind of in the function <laughs> itself. Uh, yeah. And like what, what you said is, is so true. Uh, I think it was uh, McNamara who essentially said like the first rule is to get the data and then like everything can flow from there. Like otherwise you're just left with uh, supposition and, uh, instinct, which eh, we know from IO. Yeah. Well, that, that's that another one of kind of not, like not great. principle. Well, the, one of the principles I have in people in elections, and this is probably where again, kind of going back to the Venn diagram of where IO and people analytics diverge a little bit is what I'll call like the data ecosystem. IO psychology is very much uh, scientific and hypothesis centric. Like we'll go collect the data when we have a hypothesis to test and kind of go through the whole scientific enterprise. Whereas like in people analytics, I want to collect data that I don't even need yet. Right. Totally. if I need, you know, if I need to run a, a two-year historical cycle analysis two years from now, 
I need to make sure I have the data ecosystem created today and then let it just let it ferment for two years, you know, to use a wine analogy until mm -hmm. it's, you know, good and ripe and then ready to be picked. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a really good distinction between like academic and uh, practice. Like I was reading a JAP article the other day and uh oh you were the just... only one doing that <laughs> yeah yeah right oh well actually like the uh reviewers must have given them hell because like just kind of reading through it like they had had like some of the hypotheses flipped and like they're referring to tables that uh were not there etc uh so you can tell oh, really? that like wow. it's, it's yeah at some point like the reviewers were like nitpicking them and they're trying to make edits on the fly etc but essentially what they had done is they, they collected all this like job satisfaction data uh, and uh, job description information. And I was looking at it and it's like 18 item measure, 22 item measure, et cetera. Like, I was like, oh, who the hell's their sample? It's like, oh, it's a bunch of MTurk, MTurk folks. Like, no wonder, because you can't get this information from normal people in the company without you know them revolting essentially. Uh, but did I ever tell you like, about the analysis that I did along those lines in grad school? No. What's that? Yeah, with, uh, with one of our professors who we both know. One of the other rules of this podcast, we're going to try not to name people. <laughs> uh, but one of the professors that you and I know, he had this really interesting idea for an experiment, which is like the before MTurk existed, the number one uh, place to get research was on like, you know, bonus credit in classes. Right. So you give people these crazy long surveys in a class and they get 15 points of bonus credit. Um, and so what we did is we, we created we, knowing that that was like the motivation was essentially zero for any of these people for contributing to the scientific endeavor of what we were trying to understand. We gave them this baloney, like 400 question survey that we knew nobody was going to care about. And then we had the second part of the experiment is we invited them into a room and hook them up to like a lie detection software <laughs> that we didn't actually turn on the lie detection software, but we, we turned, we, we quote unquote turned on the lie detection software and just said, answer these five questions about the survey that you just took. And one of the questions was like, what level of effort did you put into this? How honest were you? Did you rush through the survey? And we found oh that gosh. like over 50% of the people who were like worried about being honest, they, they actually said, I put no effort and into this survey. And so what you're realizing is like, whether it be MTurk or, you know, college sophomores and that are taking these surveys, most of this is garbage because nobody's putting out any effort into it. Uh, I have, I have MTurk stories as well of like, tell folks, it, <clears throat> tell it. So I was collecting, uh, A, I want to know like how you got your, got this study through IRB. <laughs> that seems like a mess. Well, that, the one thing is IRB wanted to make sure we didn't turn on the lie detection software. Right? Uh, and that, we that did do, we did a debrief after it was over to let them know that there was, you know, faking involved in that type of thing. And I'm sure there was more to it. I can't remember all the details. It was a little while ago, but we did get through IRB. Like we we made you take this 400 item survey just to yep. mess with you, yep. uh, but when I was uh, collecting my dissertation data, it was I'm trying to remember exactly how it's set up, but the the point is there was there was a counter on it. You you can tell how long people took 
on the survey and uh some people would go through this thing in like 17 seconds and uh i was paying i think it was like two bucks a person so it's it quite high value for mturk you know which a lot of the surveys pay like a nickel or a dime etc and so like every so often i'd see like these like really really low response times and i'd like write them back and essentially say like no you're not going to get your money because you have limited funds etc and uh, i remember like some folks getting like really really pissed like you know that like i'm just there trying to grift them for data etc and uh i remember like writing someone back and essentially i told them some of the effect of like it's taken me longer to write this email than it did for you to take the survey. Like, I'm not giving you your freaking money. Stop <laughs> it. I got to throw your wow. data out anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you have to have to do like the, <laughs> your own kind of, uh, you know, time to reward calculation in that regard too. But yeah, well, that's why I've actually never used MTurk, but one of my kind of rules is, if any scientific finding is based on something from MTurk, it's probably not real. Um, and that, that goes for sci like scientific and like the academic enterprise, or, I mean, there's organizations that are utilizing MTurk as well. I'm sure Amazon's one of them since it is Amazon MTurk, but they, uh, I know for a fact that they do. I and so I, I think that the, the grounding of a lot of that stuff is quite tenuous and, and surprising that so many people put such stock into it. You know, you know why I, it may be just people's perspective and like what they want to justify <clears throat> and how they use the uh, data to do it. But I've seen certain folks say that MTurk, you know, is not not worth it, which is sort of the path that we're going on, et cetera. But I've also seen a lot of people say that like, oh, no, the, the findings are essentially uh, on par with what you would get from, you know, a, a grad student class or undergrad students responding to a long ass survey uh which <laughs> i mean it's, that's, that's not accounting that both could be crap totally i mean they both could be well and like i feel like there's like a arms race in the scientific community like why would you ever need a 22 item scale is because of the psychometric arms race where everybody's just trying right. to outdo each other it's like well 21 ha or 22 items has to be more valid than 21 so let's stick this one extra item in there when really it's not really doing, I mean, I've, I'm sure you've done this plenty of times, but just like doing your own factor analyses on data is quite surprising often to find that, you know, three or four items are doing the heavy lifting out of a much longer scale, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you, you start getting these like uh, incremental variances accounted for, and it's just like, you got to go several decimal points to even like, uh, see that they register at all. What I'm getting into right now is uh, applying essentially network analytics to surveys and seeing how they function that way. So it's like, which items are bubbling to the center of the network and how do they relate to your outcome variable? Say it's like turnover and, or intent to stay rather. Uh, the idea being that if you can affect change in specific items around that target variable, then you can you have a better chance of uh, of uh, changing someone's behavior by targeting those central behaviors, central. Variables. So it's like um, interesting. That's a that's a pretty novel use of that. So so you almost like have 
contagious items versus non-contagious items. Would that be a way of putting it? That's a very good way to put it. Because, like, kind of like factor analysis, it shows that certain items kind of cluster. It's, it's yeah. essentially like clustering, right? So if you have, like, very prominent item in that cluster, you can essentially infect the other elements there. So it's like you have a certain opinion about something. Uh, that will bleed over into other things. Uh, and so kind of to say it differently, if you, again, to use the OD and people analytics being two sides to the same coin, if you're wanting to infect the culture with something positive, you really need to start with those highly clustered areas. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, those are attitudes that are highly central yeah. to, especially whatever your outcome you're trying to drive. I mean, this is a different thing, but it's <clears> kind of the same thing. Have you ever heard like the Flynn effect in, in IQ research? Yeah, the gradual rise in IQ over time. Yeah, one of the things that they found that there's actually not a rise in IQ all it is is that people at the lowest end of the spectrum that may have been like malnourished or like had exposure to lead or things like that. Yeah. They they were removed because, you know, they removed lead from gasoline or, you know, everybody had access to the proper amount of nutrients and therefore society's IQ went up, but really you just removed the lowest end of the spectrum. It's kind of like that if in, in a survey if you could just remove the lowest scoring people on these kind of highly contagious items and make it make it into them to being, you know, high scorers, then you would see an outsized impact on the overall organizational culture or whatever the de facto thing that you're trying to measure is. That's that's really insightful. And I, I haven't heard that before about the Flynn effect, but it, it jives with other things I've heard. Uh, recently, I, I was talking to a uh, professor, he's just an interest psych professor, and he was telling me about a study where, you know, uh, 100 years ago, people from the north, like, looked down on people from the south. We're both from the south, you know, kind of really... Why, why is that, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they, they thought, like, people from the south, they uh, talk slowly, so they must be dumb, you know, all these sort of things. And they found. Oh, is that, that not true? I'm kidding. No, well, I mean, it, it's. I can say this. I'm from Louisiana. <laughs> well, I mean, like half the population's below average. I mean, like, come on now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but good they, math they found, joke. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, they found that uh, these southerners, you know, this before uh, days of like indoor plumbing, et cetera, they would walk out to the outhouse at night and, you know, go do their business, whatever, and they walk back. And they would essentially be walking on dirt and they would uh, contract ringworm. Mm -hmm. And this ringworm caused all sorts of cognitive delays, et cetera. And when they eradicated that, went right back to normal, right back to... Oh, that's uh, wild. I've yeah, never heard that. Right? Huh. It makes me question all the barefoot walking I did as a child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, that's funny. Um <laughs> But like, what, what, what you get? Like, you're raising the bottom of the population back yeah. up to, uh, you know, uh, acceptable performance, or how you want to define that. Well, Scott, maybe maybe we pivot a little bit. What what can people expect us to kind of? What are they getting into if they if they subscribe to this podcast? Are they gonna, you know, is this gonna be the? You know, they're probably already getting kind of a picture of it. What what, what do we look like going forward? How how are we gonna structure these things? I don't know. Like, what, what are your thoughts? I think uh, when you and I have talked about this in the past, 
uh, we wanted to try out the first few with just you and I to make sure yeah. that we get some chemistry. But as we go along in the future, we absolutely want to bring in, you know, a guest or two to talk about, you know, what are, what are some of the cutting edge things that they're working on? What are some interesting things? Maybe get into a debate or two. You know, I really like this concept uh, a few years ago that you and I submitted to PSYOP about doing a debate <laughs> about kind of what yeah. you might call some of the sacred cows of our field. Like we're probably just going to address some of those sacred cows as a part of these conversations. And then I think about it, it's just, you know, putting some of our thoughts out into the world and see, you know, f again, can, can we find our people? Can our people find us? But I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be jovial. I think it's going to be somewhat technocratic at times. And I don't know, is that, is that your perspective? What, what is your perspective? Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. Like I, I'm really eager to talk to folks out there. I uh, see what they're doing uh just hear about all the crazy stuff that's going on i mean th there's there's so much out there that people are doing in people analytics some people are a little bit ahead some people are a little bit behind but i think we can all push everything forward by talking yeah to folks and i agree with that because like i, I kind of have this riff that we're all behind <laughs> like, <laughs> and so we, we can all get ahead together that's kind of the beauty of that uh that sentiment yeah i don't know Like what um what what are some of the top things that you're thinking about in your day to day? Like I like this whole like contagion effect and in, in the survey research. Yeah. You know, what what are some of the top things that you're thinking about right now? Top things, well, I mean, other than just like day to day, like knocking projects out, et cetera. Uh, I'm I'm delving into ML modeling. Uh, I, of course, uh, do a lot of network analytics, uh, which un unfortunately comes with data governance issues and like just data acquisition issues. Hey, we're taking a quick break to remind you to like and follow us online for more great content. Now, back to the show. Sort of like null hypothesis testing sort of stuff. So it's like. Well, I meant kind of differently. Like, so if a, if a network's not random, yeah. you know, it's, it's not random who, if you go through new hire orientation, who leads new hire orientation is going to be one of the first network nodes that most everyone connects with just by nature of that they lead new hire orientation. That's not random, right? That's kind of where I was going with it. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. And like there, there's uh, what we referring to is referred to like preferential attachment. So certain people just become that central node in the network and they the rich get richer sort of phenomenon where more people get attracted to the popular person, this sort of thing. Uh, but people that uh, say uh, disavow themselves from the network or kind of like move to the edge of the network, they tend to have common outcomes. That's not random. They uh, uh, people that uh, align themselves with a specific pattern of uh, connectivity. That'd be like ha holding a lot of meetings or uh, holding meetings with specific folks. It's not random, uh, and they have a common set of outcomes. Or uh, the people that you sit around, like the odds is kind of, I think it's called the Allen curve. So it's like in an office setting the people around you, you're going to spend like about 70% of your time with those folks. And if someone is 15 meters away, the chances of you connection with them like drops precipitously. And if they're like 30 meters away, they might as well be on another planet, right? Like you're never going to talk to these folks and that's not random either. Uh, 
That's just like, like basic proximity research. That's cool. I like that. Oh, oh, there's a whole realm called uh, space syntax that I want to get into eventually. So it's essentially like taking an office floor plan and like measuring the distances from desk to desk and, you know, seeing how people interact in that way. There's <laughs> like the Cartesian plane of a company's floor plan. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And th there's like all sorts of like great research on like open floor plans of like, I, I think like several years ago, these companies had these like ideas of like, you know, we're just going to throw everyone to like this bullpen and they're all going to like interact together and it's going to be great harmony and they're going to cross pollinate ideas and we're going to be so inventive. And like, it turns out you know where that came from, right? Where'd that come from? They all came from real estate teams trying to reduce real estate costs. Well, there you so, go. So like yeah. real estate teams have analytics of like people per square foot and things like that. If you can reduce the people per square foot, you can reduce real estate costs by X percent. And uh, and so they like that's where the whole open office concept came from is just trying to reduce pe uh, real estate spend. I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, the, the ramification of it is that uh, people just wound up putting their earbuds in and like instant messaging each other. They might as well have been at home you know, not even talking to one another. Um, Unless they're within 15 meters of each other. <laughs> yeah, right. They, they have to bump into each other, like on the way to the bathroom, et cetera. Um, but th there's like a whole whole uh, subgenre of network analytics around like innovation, like spreading ideas, et cetera, that uh, we can get into later, but it's just absolutely fascinating. Well, we'll have to have like one of your... O and A buddies on as a guest, and you guys can just kind of uh, you know bounce things off each other. Because another thing that that I think is going to be a value out of this podcast that I really don't think you'll get anywhere else is just the willingness to just throw out big ideas that might be wrong. <laughs> like, hey, let's talk about something where we're kind of swimming in in the deep end, and we we may not know exactly what we're talking about, but let's, let's play around with the ideas and see if something cool comes out of it. If we, <laughs> if we sound stupid, we sound stupid, you know, and that's no big deal. No, I mean, uh, I think that that's the beauty of it. Uh, that you throw out these ideas and then hopefully we can riff on things and something good will come out of it. Cause I mean, what 95% of your initial ideas are kind of crap, right? It's when you start really massaging them. Like think about like when you're writing a paper, it's like that yeah. those uh, other than spend like three hours on the first sentence trying to rewrite it 40 times uh that that first draft is not the final draft by any means well and this is why i kind of you know i have like well treaded over things that i've said you know a thousand times because <laughs> i guess the outline of the paper has somewhat codified itself over time and and now i you know i need to but that, that's the thing is I, I don't want to stop writing the outline. I want to keep adding yeah. to the corpus of knowledge and, and testing things out. Because, I mean, you know me. I have some wild ideas, and we'll probably talk about some of those at, at one point or another. But it's, it's just like, you know, what are some of the core foundations of why do we do what we do? And how do we know what we're doing is having an impact? And then how do we put that into practice in reality? And those, those are interesting you know, we're not playing in the theoretical realm, which is, I guess, why this isn't strictly like an academic type podcast, is we want to buttress our ideas up against reality and see see if what we're doing actually makes a difference. And and that's that's the cool part. But it's also there's implied risk and uncertainty because you don't know if what you're going to do is going to have an outcome, you know, 
and and that's the beauty of it no no you you don't and uh that's a learning opportunity too like just because like something didn't work doesn't mean that you didn't learn something from it wait Uh, scott are you saying that you don't have all the answers already (laughs) wait what i have answers i don't know if they're the correct answers (laughs) That's yeah, I, I've got no shortage of answers. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, are they right? That's the that's the key question. Oh, apparently, when you get on Twitter, you can tell that other people have a lot of answers too. But uh, I, I can yeah. see a bunch of holes in those as well. That's wild. So Scott, um, how about we uh, we think about wrapping this first thing up? Uh, yeah, anything you want to say as kind of closing comments for first podcast together? Closing comments. Uh, we'll do better next time. How about that? <laughs> yeah. We start. Yeah. <laughs> uh, make, make this our worst podcast. And we'll just yes. keep getting better. Um, well, cool, man. Well, it, it's really great talking to you again. Uh, for those of you who, uh, who, are, who are new and don't know us, uh, this is Cole Knapper and uh, Scott Hines. And thanks for joining us today. Hey, take care, everyone.